Good evening, and welcome back to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lou Bell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale is a story so spooky, it will scare the demons out of you. Please enjoy Dead Exorcists. Right, so you asked me about my best memory and worst memory, and I've been thinking about it, but frankly, it wasn't a hard choice to make. They're both really wrapped up together because actually they happen back to back. It's it's still really hard to talk about, but it is a story that's long overdue to tell. So this happened in 2002, and I had just turned 13. I was a freshman at Paris High in Paris, Kentucky, one of 196 students. You know, I never had trouble with school, but I didn't have many friends. I I wasn't seen as weird except by myself, and I later got told that everybody kind of thought of me as background scenery. You know, one of life's extras. I get what they're saying. I've definitely felt that way about myself before. When I think about that era of my life, I just remember being anxious all the time. I don't know if it felt this way to you, but to me it seemed like life was caked in fear. The president declared war on global terror. People were getting anthrax in the mail. I think the Beltway Sniper was added that year. I lived in the Bible Belt and preachers were warning crowds of thousands that the signs were all there and Judgment Day would soon be upon us. Every adult around me seemed to be like just steadily sinking into a darker mood. Things seemed bad and it seemed like they would only get worse. That was like the general feeling I always carried. I mean, I've had anxiety as far back as I can remember, but this was when it was at its worst. I was absolutely terrified of being alone anywhere. I had to sleep with the light on. I could barely speak to people, strangers especially, without my voice getting caught in my throat. My mom told me that I'd be getting some new classmates that year from the Catholic middle school we had nearby. I could hardly breathe in the weeks leading up to school starting. I was so nervous about meeting new people. But one of them ended up becoming my best friend, if only for a little while. Her name was Tina. Our first meeting happened during the tensest moment of the school year the early morning hours of the very first day. The school would open the cafeteria in the early morning for students whose parents had long commutes or early start times so that they could wait for class and get some breakfast. My mom left for work at 6 every morning, so I spent a lot of time there waiting. Something about that mostly empty cafeteria full of small gatherings that I was never a part of, well, it always filled me with dread. I was sitting alone that first day at one of those long tables, frantically just bouncing my heel up and down as I always did. Normally I'd stare at the clock on the wall and then back at the table, repeat over and over until it was finally time for class. Somehow Tina managed to sneak in between those glances and sit down directly across from me. I jumped when I saw her, but her big smile and enthusiastic, hey, what's your name, kind of calmed me down instantly. By coincidence or providence, we soon found out we both had been assigned Mrs. Brown for homeroom. Most of our classes lined up, and we chatted in the halls like old friends. We showed each other where our lockers were and found out we lived just down the road from each other. We even promised to meet up after school, and I never did that with anybody. This was the only time I'd ever bonded with someone that quickly. Tina was just completely unfiltered while I was all filter. She had a kind of wild abandon that just made me feel more free being around her. Like sympathetic sine waves, our strange frequencies aligned and boosted each other's signals, or negated them, however you want to look at it. 
Maybe I was just glad someone finally made the effort to reach out to me, to stick their hand into the dark burrow of my presence without fear. She made me feel safe. I hope I did the same for her. It baffled me when I found out much later that Tina wasn't well-liked among our peers. While I had pretty much been able to make myself invisible, Tina stood out wherever she was, whether or not she wanted to. After graduation, I found out at a party that everybody had their own distinct reason for disliking her. One person mentioned her bizarre hairstyle, which apparently was the work of her mother's untrained cutting. Another was grossed out by Tina's stained teeth. Another person brought up her confusing wardrobe, which was a mix of branded shirts and patterned sweaters and ill-fitting pants, all courtesy of church donation boxes and the Salvation Army. Somehow, I either missed all of this or blocked it out completely, but everyone also mentioned that Tina carried a really powerful odor. One classmate who had been in Catholic school with Tina told me that her nickname there was Stinky Tina. Man, kids can be awful. Anyway, I got the okay from my parents to invite Tina over for dinner that first week of school. So on that day, we got off the bus together at her stop to drop off her book bag and leave a note for her mom. Tina led the way to her house, but when we got there, I froze, recognizing it immediately. The house where Tina was living was well known to the children in the neighborhood as a deeply haunted place. There were stories of kid-skinning witches and flesh-eating ghouls who'd scoop you up if you stepped onto the porch. Kids would dare each other to run up and knock on the door, but I don't remember anyone ever doing it. One look at that decrepit home was just enough to tell you to stay away. Shingles hung down and flaked off like scabs from its roof. The windows that weren't boarded up had clouded over with thick cataracts of dust. The yard was both overgrown and decaying. At the time, I didn't think anyone did or could live there. I didn't want to step past the property line. Tina gave me a weird look, and I asked if she was trying to prank me and make me go into the witch house. She had no idea what I was talking about and told me she lived there. I laughed nervously, and I told her I'd just wait out front while she ran in. She shrugged and then did what I thought was the bravest thing I'd ever seen anyone do. Just casually walk the 15 or so steps up the path to 217 Jackson Street, open the door, and step in. After the painful creak and slam of the front door... I remember all sound leaving the world. It was like there were no birds chirping or leaves rustling in the breeze. I think I held my breath the entire time Tina was inside, just frozen in place, staring at the door. And then she stepped outside just as casually, and I was amazed. The entire walk back to my house, I pestered Tina with pretty insensitive questions about living in the witch house. Do you hear laughing at night? Does a witch live above you guys, or did she die? Do the walls really bleed and the faucets spit black ooze? How do you go to sleep at night? Do you want to sleep over at my house instead? Tina ignored all but the last question. She said she'd love to sleep over if it was okay with both of our moms. When we got to my house, after a tour of our spacious two-bedroom rant and a few episodes of Sailor Moon, dinner was ready. If you're enjoying Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake, we would really appreciate it if you would follow us and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Thank you. I remember Tina's personality changing completely around my parents. Actually, around all adults, as I later realized. At dinner, she was nearly silent, her eyes focused on her plate, answering direct questions with the fewest syllables possible. My mom found it endearing, though, and agreed to let Tina stay over if it was all right with her mom. Tina told her that her mom didn't get home at least until nine, but that she'd call her and get the okay then. 
As the sun started to set, Tina finally opened up about living in the witch house. She told me there wasn't any witch there that she knew about. The faucet sometimes coughed up some nasty goop, and on hotter days, the walls would leak a dark red fluid. Her mom told her it was just rust, nothing to worry about, just needed some repairs. Tina admitted she did have trouble sleeping there, though, and there were a few times she thought she heard laughter late at night. I wanted to hear more, to ask for more details, but the words got closed up in my throat. So, instead, we just brushed our teeth and went to bed. I'd never seen anyone fall asleep as quickly as Tina did the first night she stayed over. I was kind of disappointed, actually. We didn't have any of the typical all-night girl talk I was hoping for. As soon as her head hit the pillow, she passed out, leaving me alone to conjure my own horrible nightmares of the witch house. The next morning, I got the okay from my mom to walk to school with Tina after she left for work. It was a long walk, but better for both of us girls than getting dropped off at school hours early, and we preferred it to taking the bus. Tina and I walked together every morning for the next few months, and she spent just about every other night over at my house. After about a month, Tina and I declared ourselves best friends and blood sisters. We pricked our pointer fingers with my mother's sewing needle and sealed our covenant. We sat next to each other in every class that we shared, and we started leaving each other silly nonsense notes in each other's lockers like, wash your feet and your mom is pretty. It was a huge turning point for me emotionally. My stomach was finally unknotting itself and letting go of years of tension. I talked in class. I started to smile. That friendship really gave me a sense of safety I didn't have before. There was still a darkness that lingered in the background, though. Tina told me not to ask her about her house, but sometimes she'd tell me details out of the blue. She told me they just moved in a month before we met, and they only rented out the first floor. The top floor apparently was kept locked. Ever since they moved in, her brother, Garrett, would sometimes have seizures and then get angry and violent with everybody. One day, she asked me if I ever sleepwalk, and I told her no, but I did have an uncle who once woke up in a cornfield and didn't know how he got there. That seemed to ease her mind a little. And then Tina told me that the previous night, she'd woken up in the empty top floor of the house, in the room above her bedroom. She had no idea how it happened because, as far as she knew, the door that led up the stairs to the top floor was always kept locked. Something about the way she told me this story just sent a shiver up my back. I didn't want to think about it, though, so I just said I kept an eye on her when she slept over that night. But that wasn't all Tina told me. She said that when she woke up, there were three figures that looked like men that had no heads standing over her. She tried to get up and run away, tried to scream, but it was like she was stuck to the ground and none of her muscles worked right. All she could do was blink, so she shut her eyes as hard as she could. When she opened them again, the figures were gone. I told her maybe she was just having a nightmare, and, well, we left it at that. It was months into our friendship before I finally went inside the witch house. It was Tina's birthday, and her mother pressured her to invite me to sleep over at her own house for a change. I cannot stress enough just how much I didn't want to enter, let alone spend the night at that house. When she invited me, her only invite for her only friend, I told her that I'd have to ask my mom. From that lunch period to the end of the day, my guts all wrapped around each other and squeezed, undoing the months of progress I had made untangling them. I tried to figure out a way out of it, and I even asked my mom outright if she could ground me or say I was sick. But she said she knew it would be important for Tina and that a house is just a house and there's no such thing as witches or ghosts, that I should be brave for my friend. 
I hyperventilated for the entire walk over from my house to Tina's. I told myself there's nothing to be afraid of, but my body would just not listen. I squeezed all the excess air out of the sleeping bag that I was carrying, forcing myself to put one foot onto the beat-up concrete path that cut through their lawn. Before that foot even landed, the front door swung open and Tina came out running. She threw her arms around me and then dragged me inside. The darkness was overwhelming. You didn't just see the light get dimmer as you walked inside, but you felt it in your chest. The walls were slats of bruised brown wood paneling. Only the slightest bit of sunlight was able to force its way through the windows, and two bent brass lamps cast woozy shadows into every corner. The room itself was pretty bare. There were two mismatched chairs, a dark red sofa, and a small TV VCR combo sitting on a stool. There was nothing hanging on the walls, but on the floor resting against them were a couple of family photos in broken frames and a painting of Jesus with a bent corner. Tina's mom, Eilina, was in the kitchen. She was a small woman, skinny and tan, but in a way that made her look more sick than glamorous. When I caught her eye, she exhaled a thick cloud of cigarette smoke and waved me over with a smile. Eilina gave me a big hug like we were family. She seemed really happy to have me there. Tina said that we were just waiting on her older brother, Garrett, and her mom's boyfriend, Jimmy, to get back from the store. Then there would be hot dogs and mac and cheese. Tina and I then went to go play out in the backyard. She had a pink jump rope she had left out back, and we took turns trying to outdo each other's jump record in the middle of the yard. There was an external staircase behind the house leading up to the top floor where two dark windows hovered. I tried not to look at them for too long. And then at one point, I distinctly heard three loud bangs, like a fist pounding on the wall, coming from upstairs. We stopped jumping for a few minutes because it spooked us so bad, but neither of us had the words to talk about it. A little while later, Eilina called us back inside where the table had already been set with paper plates, a hot dog wrapped in a slice of white bread, and a spoonful of macaroni on each of them. Also at the table were Garrett, who was halfway through the first of his three hot dogs, and Eilina's boyfriend, Jimmy, smoking a cigarette and gulping what I assume was a rum and coke. Tina's twin younger siblings, Madison and Melody, emerged from somewhere and were now sitting on the couch with their food. Eilina introduced me to the family and then ordered everyone assembled to wish Tina a happy birthday. Everyone mumbled in compliance and then started to dig in, but Tina started shrieking, Ew, Mom, at her plate. She dropped her hot dog in complete disgust and yelled, The bugs are back! I looked at the hot dog in my hands and saw a small swarm of black dots making trails across it. Luckily, I hadn't taken a bite, and to this day, I still have a hard time eating hot dogs. Eilina scrambled to grab all the plates from in front of everybody, just laughing nervously. She said, I guess that means it's cake for dinner, and plopped down a candle-covered chocolate cake in the center of the table. Jimmy grunted, and Garrett got up from the table, spitting and shouting obscenities. Eilina tried to get Garrett to come back to the table and sing his sister the goddamn birthday song, but she quickly gave up and just lit the candles. Tina looked mortified, but said nothing. Eilina and I started the song off, and the twins quickly jumped in to harmonize in their nonsense twin language. But then, at happy birthday, dear Tina, bang! The light bulbs and the lamps popped, throwing bits of glass everywhere. Then bam! A cabinet door flew open and closed. Tina started sobbing. Eilina actually tried to keep the song going, but I was frozen in place, and even the twins had gone quiet. 
The only light in the room now was from the 13 birthday candles plugged into the top of the cake. And then, one by one, each flame went out. I screamed and Tina joined me. But Eilina rushed around and yelled, don't worry, don't worry, and started rummaging in a kitchen drawer until she found a flashlight. She handed Jimmy a pair of pliers and a couple of light bulbs, and before long, the darkness was forced to retreat back to the corners again. That must have been some wish, Eilina said, laughing and squeezing Tina's shoulders. I looked at Tina and tried to muster a reassuring smile, but I couldn't quite manage it. Instead, my mouth just hung open, loose until I felt a heavy, wet plop on my head. I looked up, and the roof was dripping with veins of thick, rust-colored gunk. I screamed again. After a little bit, things finally settled down. I wiped down my hair what felt like a hundred times, and we finished the cake. Jimmy and Eilina put the twins to bed and went back to their own room, leaving me, Tina, and Garrett in the living room. Tina and I wanted to watch a Sailor Moon tape that I hadn't seen yet, but Garrett was demanding we watch a movie called Dead Alive that had the most viscerally terrifying image I had ever seen on the cover. It was a skeleton trying to claw its way out from inside of a woman. Tina tried to stand up to her brother and block the TV while I tried to make peace, saying, you know, we should just watch what Tina wants on her birthday. But Garrett didn't care. He got up and slipped the tape out of its case like he was unsheathing some kind of cursed object, just smirking at us the entire time. We both begged him not to watch the video, but he just giggled and put the tape into the machine. But in a flash, Tina jumped up and snatched the tape back out. There was a clunk and then this whispery sound as Tina pulled it out and the tape's black guts came trailing out behind it. Garrett was enraged. His face bulged and just burned red. He screamed obscenity after obscenity while trying to grab hold of Tina. He finally quartered her, grabbed Tina's wrist, and threw her to the ground. He yanked the videotape from her and roared when he saw it was ruined. More obscenities and Garrett was on top of Tina, bashing the black plastic frame into her face. He grunted like a boar, spitting all over Tina. I wanted to help, I wanted to pull him off her, but it was like I was watching the whole thing on TV, totally unable to affect the outcome. After a few minutes of thrashing and screaming, Jimmy came out of the darkened hallway in nothing but boxer shorts with a leather belt in his hand. Without a word, he grabbed Garrett by his shirt collar and pulled him off Tina. He gave Garrett a knee to the gut and then dragged him onto the front lawn. Jimmy reminded Garrett that he and his mother had told him no more beating on his sister, and then he yanked down Garrett's basketball shorts and used the belt to remind him of the consequences of breaking that rule. Watching Garrett's brutal punishment being carried out, deserved or not, gave me the same faraway feeling as witnessing his crime. After what felt like forever, Jimmy walked back inside, pulling a crying Garrett by the ear. Garrett, who was clearly broken and shamed, marched back to his room after he blubbered an apology to Tina. By then, Tina had already gone to the bathroom and cleaned the blood off her face. She had come back with tissues in her nostrils and muttered her own half-swallowed sorry. I pretended I didn't hear it or know what she was talking about. We put in the tape that we wanted to watch, not really talking, and then eventually just drifted off to sleep. Me in my sleeping bag and Tina on the couch. Sometime late into the night, I woke up to Tina mumbling and thrashing around. I whispered to her, trying to wake her up or snap her out of whatever was going on, but she didn't respond. So I just stared into the darkness and listened, too scared to move. 
I don't know how to explain it, but it sounded like three voices were coming from inside Tina, arguing with each other in what could have been Latin for all I knew. I just knew that it wasn't Tina speaking. Eventually, everything went quiet again, and I don't know how, but somehow I managed to fall back asleep. At the crack of dawn, I woke Tina up and told her I wasn't feeling well. Then I walked home and rang my own doorbell until my mom woke up and let me in. She asked me a few times what happened. I didn't know where to start, so I just stayed quiet. After everything that happened at the birthday party, Tina's mom apparently couldn't take it anymore and finally went to go see a priest for help. His name was Father Keith. He agreed to come to the house and see for himself if there were any supernatural problems. Tina told me that the first time Father Keith opened the front door, he was so overwhelmed that he puked and had to lie down. He told Eilina that she should find somewhere else for the family to stay as soon as she could. That meant a two-week slumber party at my house with my best friend. That first week, well, those are my best memories. It was like we were real sisters, twins even, since we were both the same age and in the same classes. We stayed up until we were delirious. We made each other laugh until our stomachs hurt. One night, and I guess if I had to pick a single moment, this is as good as any, we made this martial arts movie with my family's old VHS camcorder, and Tina actually punched through a brick we found on the road. We lost our minds at that. We just watched it over and over again all night. But then, during the second week, things took a turn. I started having really vivid nightmares about being chased by this headless figure, and I'd wake up and Tina would be mumbling in her sleep. And then I would see it. I know it sounds crazy, but I'd see the thing in my nightmare actually in my bedroom, looming over us. It happened a few times that week. I would try to scream, but I couldn't, so I just closed my eyes tight, not able to sleep, but too terrified to get up. Those nights, I just lay frozen next to Tina as she laughed and cried in her sleep, mumbling about fires and holes and snakes and all sorts of things that must have been haunting her nightmares. I never told Tina about the thing in the room, but it made me want to know everything about the priest and what was happening back in her house. Tina had known Father Keith for a while. He taught theology in Tina's Catholic school, and Tina talked him up like he was God's divine messenger himself. We didn't know exactly what he was doing in the house, but Tina's mother believed if anyone could expel the darkness in the house, it was him. We tried to spy on him in the witch house once that week through the window when we were walking home from school. He was in his collar and robe with a Bible in his hand, and it looked like he was arguing with something, but he was alone in the room. At the end of the second week, Tina's mom brought her and the rest of the family back home, and then suddenly, all of them disappeared. Tina didn't show up for school. She didn't pick up the phone or call. I went by the witch house, but they had the blinds pulled down and I was still too afraid to go knock on the door. I asked my mom if she could go find out what happened, but she kind of blew it off. I know she looked down on Tina's mom, thought she was irresponsible. My anxiety started skyrocketing again to the point where even my mom noticed it. I didn't know how to talk about all these things though. I was having panic attacks at school and every night, I saw that horrible, headless thing in my room. And then one night, weeks later, I ran into Tina accidentally. It was at the corner store. My mom had taken me there to rent a movie and suddenly we saw Tina and her mom in the aisle with a shopping cart full of white candles. My mom made some small talk with Tina's mom and Tina and I snuck off to another part of the store. She looked bad. Her eyes were red and tired 
She was really thin. I asked her what the hell was going on. Tina told me the exorcism was still going on. She said the priest was still at the house and he'd been fighting the demons that were infesting it. She told me that the devil was trying to control them, but if they all fought back with Father Keith, they'd be safe. Then she asked me if I was still seeing the headless figure. My whole body got goosebumps because I had never mentioned it to her, but she knew. Apparently, Father Keith had told her that I had been infested by the demons too. When the house dripped its red guck on me when it seeped into my hair, the demons entered my body, he said, and they would always follow me now. It was that part of the conversation when my mom came around the corner and caught us. She immediately snatched me away. We even left our cart behind and she walked me out of the store. On the drive home, I asked her what an exorcism was, but she freaked out and told me that Tina's mom was crazy and I wasn't ever allowed to talk to Tina again. That night, though, I waited until my parents fell asleep and I got on the computer. Searching for exorcism took me to a website with all red text on a black background. On the site were a bunch of stories from random people about times that they had witnessed exorcisms. I read all about demonic possession, the way people would suddenly become angry and violent, the horrible things they would hear and see. Maybe Father Keith was right. Maybe I was possessed. That could explain the nightmares. I decided that maybe I needed protection too. That I needed an exorcism. I quietly got off the computer and floated down the stairs, completely silent, and snuck outside. The deep darkness of my street would have normally kept me at my doorstep, but that night I just kept walking, pulled towards the witch house. The lights were on inside and drew me closer. Before I knew it, I was at the front door, but I didn't need to knock. The door creaked open and waiting there for me was Tina with the priest right behind her. The priest looked like he hadn't left a witch house since he got there weeks ago. He had a beard and his features were all sharp and angular like he hadn't been sleeping or eating. His robe was matted with dust and grime from the house. His hands were clawing onto Tina's shoulders, digging in with his long, sharp fingernails. All the hope I had in his ability to help me vanished. I froze. But then Tina took my hand and pulled me in and slammed the door shut. There were lit candles on every surface, and everything else was moving shadows. I remember hearing heavy breathing and steady thumping like a clock ticking. My eyes started to adjust, and I saw Eileen's boyfriend, Jimmy, slumped over in a chair, motionless. His head was kind of to the side in this really uncomfortable pose. Looking back, I think he might have already been dead. I looked around for the source of the thumping. It turned out the twins were standing in the dark hallway, facing opposite sides, taking turns, slamming their foreheads into the walls, giggling each time. I started to feel really sick and lurched over, but Tina was still holding my hand. She pulled me closer and we finally looked each other in the eyes. Her expression was empty, but her eyes looked so scared. I tried to scream, but instead I just choked and threw up on the floor. The priest pulled Tina away and loomed over me. He kept repeating something I couldn't understand. I'm guessing Latin, but it could have been gibberish. He started dripping something on me. Holy water, I hoped, but I was terrified and I just kept screaming and retching. The twins suddenly stopped their headbutting game and everything went quiet except for a tinkling metal sound. That was when Eilina emerged from the dark hall with Garrett trailing behind her. Eilina's eyes were like glass and Garrett was wrapped in heavy chains that kept him mostly immobile. 
He had to waddle out to the living room where the priest met him, putting his palm on Garrett's forehead. The priest started whispering and then shouting, Lord Almighty, force the devil out of these children. And Garrett went absolutely wild. He started thrashing around and biting at the chains and then fell over onto some candles. The priest turned back to me. His eyes were spinning all over the place and he started getting closer. He yelled, Out, demon! This is not your home! Leave this place! And then I started growling. I opened my mouth and in a deep, unnatural voice, I grunted, Weak little man, bring the family upstairs. That is where I live. Come and have a visit. Then I went limp, laying as still as possible. Everyone went quiet, and I was just praying that my ruse worked. Father Keith bought what I said, and then silently herded everyone towards the door, leading to the top floor. He pointed and commanded, Upstairs. Tina, Garrett, the twins, and Eileen all began shuffling up the dark stairs. Father Keith had his back to me, and I knew this was my chance. My body tightened up like a fist. Then I jumped up and burst out of the front door, straight onto the street, running as fast as I've ever run in my life. I never looked back. I didn't think about Tina for a second. I just thought about my home, my house, how many steps from where I was until I hit the front door and would be safe. As soon as I got back inside, I raced to my room and buried myself under the covers. All night, I just shook and wept, terrified of what I had witnessed and of what might have happened after I left. The next day, when I got to school, I was hoping I'd get to homeroom and see Tina there okay and acting like her old exuberant self, hoping the exorcism worked. But, of course, she wasn't there. I could hardly think all day, and I just watched the clock tick with knots in my stomach. I had to go back, back to the witch house to see what happened. I walked to Tina's house after school and saw nothing. No movement, no lights, not a sound emerging. I wanted to knock on the door, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I wanted so badly for Tina to be okay, but I couldn't make myself take a step towards the house. I walked away as quickly as I could, never looking back. Late that night, I left my room to get a soda and my mom had fallen asleep with the TV on. The local news was playing and there was a live shot with a reporter standing in front of the witch house with police cars and flashing lights everywhere. The screaming Chiron under the reporter read, Seven dead in Devil's Duplex. I screamed. My mom woke up and saw. She held me all night while I sobbed into her chest. I still didn't tell her what had happened that night, and frankly, I never have. I got the full story in bits and pieces from the news and radio in the next few weeks. The entire family... Eileen's boyfriend and Father Keith were all dead, all killed in different ways. Jimmy had been asphyxiated, strangled with a cord found around his neck. The twins had both died of blunt force trauma to the head. Tina had been found hanging from a fan, a chair laying sideways under her swaying body. Eileen had been beaten to death with chains, maybe the same chains that Garrett had been wrapped in, and Garrett's throat was sliced with a piece of broken glass. Father Keith died from blood loss. They said he had bitten off his own tongue. All seven of them were found on the top floor of the house. Years later, the witch house burned down while I was in college, 
and I learned later that the city uncovered some horrible toxic chemical dump that seeped in the groundwater there. Lead and arsenic and all that good stuff. They had to relocate everybody, my parents included, to the other side of town. It's one of those super fun cleanup sites now. They're still working at it. For a lot of folks, it explains what happened there, where the witch house once stood. Explains the strange things in that house, the behavior of the people that died there, probably driven to delirium from all the poisoning. But they don't know what I know. That every night, since the first night I saw it, the headless figure still stands over me. And that years earlier, it had convinced me to lure Tina, her family, and the exorcist to the top floor of the house where it lived and where it killed them. Tonight's episode was inspired by the true tragic story of Annalise Michelle, who died after a year-long series of exorcisms in 1976. Annalise was born in 1952 in what was then West Germany to a devout Catholic family. At 16 years old, she began having convulsive fits and was initially diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. But these episodes got worse and worse as she got older, despite taking several anticonvulsive drugs. By the time Annalise was 20, she was experiencing severe depression, hallucinations, and outbursts of aggression and violence. Annalise described seeing devil faces to her parents throughout the day and hearing voices that degraded her and condemned her to hell. She said it was the worst when she was praying. Pretty soon, Annalise couldn't be around any signs or symbols of Christianity, and she'd become agonized at the sight of a cross. Doctors and psychiatrists spent years trying to do everything they could, but no one was able to alleviate Annalise of her pains and fixations. Annalise's family finally took this as a sign that she was possessed by the forces of Satan. Now, the local priests were hesitant to intervene as the Roman Catholic Church has a pretty high bar for officially recognizing cases of possession. But after continued medical intervention failed, the priest Father Ernst Alt felt forced to step in. Annalise's symptoms, like her aversion to religious symbols, are one of the classic signs of possession. Along with the knowledge of demonology, unnatural postures, supernatural strength, and an impossible or unlikely knowledge of the past, all of which is said she displayed. After his investigation, Father Alt was able to obtain permission from the bishop to perform the rites of exorcism. Annalise's condition continued to deteriorate through the year of Father Alt's exorcisms. She grew emaciated, refusing to eat, and her fits and lack of self-preservation led to her body being covered in bruises and her bones full of fractures. Father Alt did all he could in trying to drive out the spirits that plagued her, but in the end, he was unsuccessful. Annalise was found dead in her home. The official cause from the coroner's examination was dehydration and malnutrition. At the time of her death, she weighed only 63 pounds. After an investigation, the state actually brought charges against the family and Father Alt for negligent homicide. The investigation concluded that Annalise's death could have been prevented with proper intervention up until the week before it happened. The case was the first of its kind, an official stand against the practice of exorcism, and it was a media sensation. 
At the trial, the family and Father Alt were forced to defend the diagnosis of possession, entering some very disturbing evidence in the public records, like the recordings of Annalise's inhuman-sounding screams and growls during the exorcisms. But these were not enough to convince the judge, and both the family and Father Alt were convicted of negligent homicide. Their sentences were suspended, but they were all forced to pay a fine for the legal proceedings. To this day, though, exorcisms continue around the world across a broad spectrum of faiths and traditions. The numbers are impossible to count, but anecdotal reports from official Catholic exorcists say that cases are on the rise. In 2018, the Vatican held the first annual exorcism training summit, instructing over 250 priests from 51 countries around the world. Tonight's tale was written by Ian Wood. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's edited by Anton Doty and Matt Sewell. It's mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake. Now that you're spooked to the bone and won't be able to sleep all night, please go ahead and follow, rate, and review us. Sweet dreams.